Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment. We want you to learn, laugh, and live. But first and foremost, don't die. Hey, stop dying, everybody. This is number two in the series of Bob Talks. This is Mike Mart. I voluntarily follow Bob around and record his talks. I always think he's amazing and has such insight, a very real depth to this recovery program and this industry that is needed. This was recorded at Owl House in Malibu on the 16th of January, 2018. Let's join Bob right now. Unless you have faith that I'm going to feel as cool as dope makes me feel sober or semi as cool, you're going to always use dope. But you can get to a place without dope, you feel pretty good about things. I don't even notice that I'm not on drugs anymore. I get up about things that make me up. I get down about things that you would get down about. And it's all kind of organic and natural. That's what you wanted in the first place. That's why you started taking drugs. That's why I started taking drugs in the first place. I didn't feel natural. I felt like people bored me a lot. I got to be honest with you. And that's really hard to fucking deal with day in, day out. Once I found alcohol was the first kind of drug, I was like, this is pretty badass. Me and my two friends bought, uh, got some old dude at the market when we were like 13 to buy us a six-pack of Heineken. We went out in the desert. I lived in Palm Springs. We went out in the desert, and we were drinking them. We each had one, right? There's three people. And then I just drank the first one. I was like, fuck Yeah. Fuck yeah, and I was running around the desert and like feeling so good. And I went back and I got the other one. I had half of the second one drinking. And those guys were like, I don't feel good. I was like, what are you talking about? So I drank my second one. And then they like, the one guy opened the uh, second one. And then he drank like this much of it and said he didn't want it, gave it to me. I drank that one. And then that sixth one was sitting there. And they both said, I'm going to go back. Like we were out in the desert and they were like, we're going to go back. And I said, okay. And I just sat there by myself. The first time I ever drank, I just sat there by myself and drank that third beer. It was fucking great. I remember laying, anybody been to like Palm Springs sand dunes? The sand dunes that are real sand, not like with bushes on it. When you sit in them in the, in the spring, right? It's so cool and you can build yourself into it. And I remember just sitting there in the sand dune drunk, 13 years old going, this is what I'm going to do. Why did I not have a great feeling anyway? Why were people so irritating to me? Why were people so stupid to me? Why was I so on edge? Was it the psychology and the depression? Turned out, no, it wasn't. It's not biological in nature what's wrong with me. It was this thing that you talked about which is family history of what this unsettled genetics does. And here's the thing I'm going to tell you. The thing that you have that's genetically based has nothing to do with alcohol and drugs. How about that for a crazy idea? You're not allergic to alcohol. There is no such thing. But unscientific people give out unscientific ideas, and it just spreads like wildfire. Sound familiar in our culture? The markers for alcoholics that alcoholics have, and they're the one that they've measured, is this particular genetic pattern in a certain part of the genome. What that part of the genome is, is attunement to environment. It seems to be where light and sound is located, where affect, where your understanding of facial expressions and emotions, that's what it is. Alcoholics 
are highly attuned to how bright these fucking lights are. You can see some alcoholic put something in there to try to dull it. Blinding lights. That fucking fan has been driving me nuts since we started. I hear it as loud as... The normal people don't notice that fucking fan. It's fucking loud, right? So it's bright, it's loud. So we're highly sensitive to light and sound. And the third thing that is so profound, and you'll know that you're alcoholic if you know this, I know what people are feeling. I have a tremendous amount of understanding of the human condition. I want to help you gain insight. I want to gain insight, and I want to help you gain insight. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous exists. That's why these treatment centers exist, because of that attunement and attachment to other people that have it. I'll give you the example. I've been working in treatment, like I said, for like 20 years, right? So I've heard it, not even exaggerating, tens of thousands of times. I've never told anybody this. To almost strangers, people you just met on the smoking area, they're not to be trusted, they're criminals. Don't be telling them your most deep, intimate secrets, your spouses and parents don't know why would you fucking do that because you trust other addicts we understand i've had some crazy shit said to me and i'm like i get it i get it i get it i get it i don't think it was a good idea but i get it because that kind of understanding we're only going to have it for each other let me tell you nobody else gives a fuck about drug addicts but us the pharmaceutical industry obviously doesn't if you go back and read some of Purdue Laboratories' internal memos about the collateral damage that was going to happen from the OxyContin legalization and pain management. Collateral damage. That's what the tens of thousands of addicts who died from OxyContin are. Just collateral damage. Who advocated for that collateral damage? Did Congress do anything? don't think they have. Did law enforcement do anything? I don't think they have. Did anybody do anything to try to change this thing that was happening for the last eight years in our country that now the leading cause of death in America is drug overdose? Is anybody going to advocate for us? No, we're going to. We're going to care about each other. We're going to solve it no matter how irritating millennials are and your apathy and all that that I'm irritated by. I'm going to love you and try to educate you so you can educate each other so you can start to change this tide. Kids got to stop dying. You have to. There's no one else to take your place. Wherever you are in life, don't you understand you're not going to be there forever? I'm 56 years old. You know what? I started out, I were cleaning banks in high school. Why they would let some high school kid into a bank? I tried to get into the fucking safe so many times when I was <laughs> high on fucking pot. Like when you're stoned, I would just sit there. This is before cameras. Now you'd get arrested. But, but I had keys to all these banks in Huntington Beach, and I would go around and clean banks in the middle of the night, right? It's a good job for a drug addict. I was like, do some black beauties, they were called, like... So everybody be drinking, smoking pot at the beach like at 12 o'clock and then they have to go home because they're high school students and they got to get some sleep. And I'd be like, I got to take some black beauties and go clean banks, right? Do you think when I had that job, I knew it was only going to be for a temporary thing. I didn't think this is the rest of my life. Oh, I'm going to be cleaning banks. I'm going to be a janitor. I didn't even label myself janitor. I just thought it was cool. I had the keys to bank. I even brought a girl into a bank one time. And we were too nervous to do anything, but I was like, I know where we could be alone. But, you know, you're 18 years old. What the fuck are you going to do? So I never took it as a permanent thing, a permanent state. 
I always knew something fun's going to happen, right? I didn't know what. I didn't go to college to be designed out for what was going to happen. I went to college because everybody else was in college. Like, I didn't think like, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to be an engineer. Like, engineer, fuck you. Who cares? Just go. I worked at the radio station. I worked on the newspaper at the college. It was fun. This idea that you have to decide and then go execute and then become, that's not how life happens. Ask your parents how they became who they became. Did they have this plan to become who they became? Probably not. So how did I become a drug counselor? I was tricked into it. I hate drug counselors. They're so condescending and such assholes. I fucking hated every one of them that I ever met. When I was two years sober, I got depressed and I didn't have to really work and I had money. And a friend of mine said, dude, why don't you go volunteer at MAP? That was this drug program that we liked. And so I went over there and I talked to this guy that ran it that I looked up to and I said, dude, you know, I don't, I'm not really playing music and I don't really have a job. I just thought if I could come here and volunteer or do anything you want. He goes, sure, man, sure. And I just started filing shit. I remember one of my first big responsibilities there was to do a thorough um, census of our success rate, right? It was this drug program. In the intake paperwork, you always have a phone number there, right? And so I would call the phone number and say, hey, this is Bob over at Musician's Assistance Program, just doing a follow-up and wondering if you're still sober, right? 50% or more, that phone number was no longer worked. But of the half, even, even of the half, just over the phone, two-thirds of the people wouldn't lie. They'd say, no, I screwed up and I'm back on drugs, but I'm back in sober living or whatever. They would be honest and tell me that they weren't a success. And then a third, who I believe the, of the 50% who were a success, I think some of them were lying, right? So I go back to my boss and I go, this is fucked up. I don't know what you want out of this. It's about a 36% success rate. But like half the people's phone numbers don't work. He goes, you can't factor in what you don't know. I go, no, but you could say half the people don't have the same phone number a year later. They're probably high. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> That's what he said. And then I go, but how do I know some of these 36% aren't lying? And he goes, you don't. So then I'm at the board of directors meeting, this board big annual meeting for the drug program of how we get funded. It was a nonprofit, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm nervous because it's the first time I'm wearing a tie and suit and I'm a part of it and whatever. And they have this pamphlet and I'm looking through it and it says 36% success rate in the fucking thing. I'm, there's no way it has a 36% success rate. Well, what does it matter what the success rate is? You know what I mean? But the people who give the money want to see the success rate. So you have to put some bullshit thing together. People that want to be sober seem to get sober, and people that don't want to be sober don't seem to get sober. We started this place to help people in a genuine, altruistic way to understand you got a biological problem. It's not really that big of a problem. You got a sociological problem. I think that's a big problem. You got a psychological problem. That might be profound. It might be moderate. It might be light. The trauma is in the family. It's in the sociopathy. It's in who you are. Trauma is the main hurdle. It's the, it's the thing I'm still dealing with now. I know what depression is. Either you either have major depression, you take medicine, and, or you have chronic depression, and you try to talk your way through it. I was in talk therapy twice a week for like five years. Sometimes you don't even know what you're fucking talking about. But 
through that whole process, I got profound insight about certain things. One is you choose your life. You choose how much you engage with people you don't like or who don't like you. That was a profound thing for a codependent person to learn. Why do you time and time again try to get approval from people who have proven to you time and time again they do not approve of you? I was like, I don't know, you're the psychologist, but why do I do that? And he goes, trauma. So we got to work through this. Why do I need the approval of people? Why do I pick the people who disapprove of me to need approval from? It's a very profound question to ask yourself, right? So the best example, so if you're anything like me, 100 people can tell you you're great and you did a great job, whatever you did. If you washed the dishes or you, or you rode a horse or whatever, right? They'll tell you, you did, I love you, you're so great, you're so funny, and whatever. And one person says, I don't know about you. What do you focus on? The one person said, I don't know about you. 12 people could tell you, hey, you're great, that's a cool hat, whatever, you know. One guy's like, eh, you're kind of a dick. And like, what? What? No, no, I'm not. Or no, I'm not, motherfucker. <laughs> you get violent, and then you get kicked out, and then you prove them right. So you got to like start to see how who you are was created by the family of origin and by your experiences and by your childhood trauma, and you can break free of it. Somebody doesn't like me. I mean, I, st I started noticing it. A lot of people don't like me, right? I've always been really liked up until like the last seven, eight years. And, and it, it was weird not being liked. Like, you're a dick, you're a sellout, you're a fuckhead, you fucking sell sobriety for money. And I'm like, okay. At first, I was defensive about it. Like, why is there so much animosity towards me and Dr. Drew in particular, right? And I was just like, I don't get it. Like, why do these people care so much? And I realized trauma. Roland, my doctor's fucking words, they have trauma too. And I represent something to them. Trauma, trauma, trauma. Why am I angry at them? Trauma. Why do they think I'm a scumbag? Trauma. Why do they care? Trauma. Why do I care? Trauma. It surrounds us and we don't even fucking see it. And this society won't even acknowledge it. Right? And so if you've been abused, neglected, overly protected, I think that's the new one. Micromanaged, never given your own autonomy in the world. That's abuse right? Um, you've got this trauma and it affects how you view the world and how you interact with people. And it is the ongoing journey. I'll give you an, uh, the last example I'll say. So a friend of mine was under attack, really getting criticized a lot, like just brutally. And I said, don't read the internet. And he's like, what do you mean? What are they saying? Because he hadn't been. But then when I said, don't read the internet, Immediately, he wanted to read the internet to find out what people are saying about him. And I was like, no, I'm not kidding. Like, it's all just a bunch of fucking dumbasses that, you know, you bring a lot of joy to people's lives. Don't read the internet. So, of course, what does he do? He reads the internet. He goes, call, he texts me, can you believe people? And I was like, every day I believe it. It's so much easier to be hateful. It's so much easier to criticize. It's so much easier to be mean than it is to be helpful or thoughtful. When somebody's helpful or thoughtful, particularly like a, a masculine, if a male is helpful or kind or sweet or thoughtful, what's thought to be them? What are they labeled? Wimpy, lame, weak. To be compassionate, to be understanding, to be helpful, to be kind. Right? I still go through it because um, 
you know, musicians who I grew up with, a lot of them are stay-at-home dads. And, you know, I'm kind of a part-time stay-at-home dad. So we're at the park like at two in the afternoon on a Wednesday, and you just get this feeling like, this is really awkward. Men are not supposed to be here on Wednesdays at two o'clock. Dude, we get, this is what we do. We take care of our kids. We love our kids. We actually are dads that are home with our kids 90% of their existence. I thought that was a good thing. Not when it upsets the apple cart so much from the social norm. It's really weird. Why, was the guy, why would a guy not be out working? Because girls can work too and boys can stay home. I've found that time and time again. People always ask me, because I'm associated with Dr. Drew and I go a lot of places with him and I go to SC with him. So the typical questions they ask me, how do you know Dr. Drew? And I go, I've just known him for 30 years. We've been friends forever. Oh, so but what do you do? Meaning, why are you here to lecture with him? What do you do? And I'm like, I'm like a guy, that, like a sober guy. I'm like, talk to people about being sober. <laughs> right? And because it just anomalies stand out and people feel really uncomfortable. We used to embrace individuals. We embrace people's individualities. Instead of everyone has to fit into the Walmart box. And unless, and if there's one place we can do that is amongst the addiction population. You don't have to become normal. Who would want that? But you do have to become the best, most whole you. This idea of you become normal, you can just act normal, can't you? So I love this t-shirt. I had this t-shirt since I was my using days. It started to get holes. I just love it. It just fits me right. I just like it. There used to be blood stains all through here from shooting dope. And, you know, you always have to wear long sleeves. And that was back when it was illegal. And so it really started to fray and fuck up. So I just thought, what should I do? I thought, I'll take it to the dry cleaners and have her sew another shirt inside. So that's what I did. Trying to get her to understand what I wanted with this shirt took 20 minutes. I was like, so I want to take this shirt and you just sew it in at the neck. And the, she go, why for? Because I love this shirt. And she goes, oh, this shirt holes everywhere. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but it has special special, you know, uh, sentimental value to me. I need to have this shirt. So all I want you to do is just sew it inside. She says, sew inside. Very peculiar, but I do it. And so she always asks about the shirt when I drop off. She's like, you still got the shirt inside the shirt? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> We've got to embrace who we are. Or we're going to lose ourselves trying to mimic normalcy, which I don't think there is much normalcy. And if we are not being authentic, we are bound to be disillusioned. That is existence in a nutshell. Try to find something that looks worth doing and do it. Get up tomorrow morning and watch the sun come up. There's practical things you can do. Everything doesn't have to be so profound. I watch the sun come up pretty much every morning because I have a one-and-a-half-year-old. You know, it's not by choice, but I watch it. And some days it's beautiful, right? The sunset tonight was beautiful. Get real. All this stuff about money and whatever, and uh, I'll tell you this last funny thing. So my aunt died a couple weeks ago, and her funeral was like two weeks ago. I was there, and I just, I ruminated over all the thousands of interactions I had with her. And it's just been with me all these weeks. I just think about certain things she said and certain things. It's just like I keep thinking about her. Now, what's interesting is when she was alive, I wasn't thinking about her. But somehow I needed a reminder, like, life has a limit. It has an ending. You really like this woman. You should probably should have gone and visited her. Should have probably made an action instead of, like, have to be reminded just by the loss of her, like, how cool she was. 
every time I that comes up, like, you know, I luckily saw a really good friend of mine that died last year and I saw him like two weeks before he died. And I remember I said, I have this code with drug addicts that are friends of mine. Like, are you all right? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't start that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all right. I'm all right means you seem high to me. And he was dead two weeks later of a drug overdose. I'm just glad I said that to him. He knew what I meant. I gave him that opportunity to say, no, dude, I'm fucking up. I remember I was at the 101 diner on Franklin and Gower. And he was there, and I, I said what was important. Like, if I didn't say that, I'd feel like, fuck, I should have said something. But I did. And so it was, like, uncomfortable. But he knew what I was saying to him. Are you okay? Dude, call me. We are a community that's tight-knit. You can do it amongst yourselves. You can do it up in Seattle. You can do it everywhere. Interesting thing about Seattle AA, right? LAA is so kiss-assy of celebrities, right? So this friend of mine that's kind of a famous musician got sober in L.A. and was going to L.A. and everybody's so helpful. and like, where are you guys going to eat? And like, you need a ride? Hey, here's my phone number. All the phony Hollywood AA. So he goes back to Seattle, right? And he's been having this great experience of 12 steps down here for like six months. He goes back to Seattle and goes to a meeting and no one would talk to him. He raised his hand as newcomer and no one introduced themselves. And he was texting a friend of ours, like, dude, it's really fucking weird. Like, it's not the same as L.A. And then he came back down here and we're talking about it. He goes, dude, people in Seattle are purposely mean to me. That's the whole vibe of Seattle. Like, I'm in a famous band, so be a dick to me. That's kind of weird. But I just find that everybody's culture is different. You want to kind of build a team that if, you know, they'll help you move or or walk you through shit when you're scared or come over to your house when you're having a bum time like that friend of mine did when I was smashing up the house. You want to get those people, not the people that are super nice to you. If you're a part of it and people aren't reaching out to you, there's something wrong, right? They should be reaching out to you. So they'll be nice to you at the meeting, but do they follow up, right? Try to keep a list of who's following up, who's not, who remembers your name from last week, who says hello to you. Yeah, how's it going? Are you still in the rehab? Are you in sober living? Are you back home or whatever? That are really paying attention. So try to find that. But you got a biopsych social problems. You better, you know, start seeing them that way, or one of the others going to grab you and snatch you and take you away. Away. You'll always want to drink, right? That's the one clear thing that is definitive about alcoholics. In the end, when push comes to shove, there's just this thing like, ah, drink would make this better. I don't experience it much anymore, but I experienced it a lot in the beginning. We long for connection to people, to be a part of a community. And every part of our alcoholism is say, don't, 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 be alone. Don't, you don't need those people. You don't need those people. Our inner voice longing for connection. You got your cognitive voice saying, fuck, those people don't trust them. You got your inner voice saying, I need to feel connected and be, be a part of something. No one's ever fucked me up more than me. That's the truth. No one's ever fucked me under more than I fucked myself under. The best idea I had is I'll steal from my friends because if I get caught, they'll never press charges against me. Right? Doesn't that seem like a smart criminal act? I mean, don't adopt it, but it's a smart idea, right? Like breaking into their houses and stealing shit. So that's what I did. I thought, oh, I'm the smartest guy in the world. Right? No, I wasn't. You got to go back and make that right. You've got to tell people it stole from you. I just figured I'm going to die, so I didn't plan on all this. So through the years, I've had to tell people, you know, you know when somebody broke into your house or whatever? That was me. 
I want to make that right. How do we do that? My one friend came up with a really ingenious way of doing it. He goes, how much do you think you stole? And I was like, not that much. And he goes, how much do you think you stole? And I was like, I don't know, say like maybe five grand. And he goes, okay. So forever, when we go out and eat, you pay for me. And I said, forever? And he's like, forever. That seems fair. And I was like, okay. So then that went on and on and for years. And then one night we were at a restaurant and I went to grab the thing. He said, no, I think it's over. I think we're square. And he said, let me pay. And then he paid. That's beauty. You got to have faith that there's beauty in the human condition. That's what your soul wants. That's what your internal voice wants. Connection and love and acceptance. What your external cognitive mind says, you need money, power, property, and prestige. You need people to admire you. You need to own a home. You need to have a respected job. You need this. You need that. You need the other thing. You need this. You need some shoes. You need this these cool glasses, I got to admit, they are very cool. You need that, you need this, you need a black hat, you need a gray hat, you need cool striped stocks, you need a Lakers key for your front door, you need, you need, you need, you need. And the internal voice, all it needs is love and acceptance. That is everybody's dilemma, not just drug addicts. This is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.